Well, hello and welcome to Wilson and Windsor's Libertadores podcast. If not the only, then certainly one of the podcasts in English dedicated to the greatest competition in South America, the Copa Libertadores. Uh, I'm joined, well, hosted tonight by Mr. Oliver Wilson in his beautiful Buenos Aires bachelor pad. Yeah, always hosting this. Um, the host with the most, I'd like to say. It's, it's good hosting as well, you know. I'm, I'm a humble booze, man. You got, it's a nice, it's a tidy <laughs> flat. It does the job, man. It's, it's echoey though, because it's, uh, it's pretty lonely it's in this place. It's clinical as minimalist, but I like it. We were not joined this week. Unfortunately, Joel Richards could not join us. He was in northern Brazil, I think, somewhere fighting or covering the... Uh, Covering the, the devastation in the in the Amazon. It's been wet in Buenos Aires, so he figures he's got a hose pipe going from his flat here all the way up to the Amazon, and he's trying to do as much as he can to save the rainforest. He's a boots-on-the-ground journalist, as you said, Ollie. Admirable. Very yeah, admirable, absolutely. indeed. Uh, Peter Coates also couldn't join us. He was writing up a scouting report on Huracan under-17s. Adidas have just released some new red shoelaces for the Giselles, <laughs> so I think he's been ordering those feverishly online as well this evening. Uh, and Nico, the Boca fan, is already in Santiago, Chile, for the... Final of the Libertadores. He's so confident of progressing past the second leg, going through the semi-finals. He's in his hotel and, and ready, ready for the final. Camped outside the wrong stadium for a ticket, which is foolish but bold, and I, I respect the boldness. But they're not there yet either. So, so it was just Wilson and Windsor today. We also thought we were going to be joined by Lucas, the River fan, but unfortunately wasn't uh, forthcoming in the end. He had so, to work. So close to joining us as well, but. Yeah, apologies, Lucas. While we were recording, <laughs> I believe you were actually outside the flat. So, so that it was we weren't trying to be rude. It was uh, yeah. Would have been nice to have him as a Racing fan just to cut that Boca River edge and mm -hmm. just kill off both of them. But unfortunately, Absolutely. I guess the results we're going to talk about don't really give him the chance to do that anyway. <laughs> you know, I bloody love this tournament, Wilson. The Libertadores. <laughs> it's not bad. It's fantastic. All right, it's late here in Buenos Aires, and we're off out into the night sky. Enjoy the pod. <laughs> Enrique gets in between the two. Victor Cuesta with a fair challenge. Still might fall for Enrique. Flamengo have the lead. Finish with a plum to put the seal on a fabulous Palmeiras performance. Gustavo Scarpa just helping himself to a goal. Apila takes it down, takes the strike on and fires Boca in front. It's a quite splendid goal from Apila. Be a second one here for Bruno Enrique into the bottom corner. Double delight for Bruno Enrique on the night for Flamengo. In the trendy centre of the yeah, city yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A so so um, trendy, like in really trendy places. The barmaids or barmen are grumpier. So you know you're in the trendy part of town. <laughs> if they look at you with disdain while they're serving you. And they you. certainly looked at us with disdain. Okay, yeah. That well. was a nice nice drink we had, Ollie, in a very, very hipster part of town where the, where the bar, bar staff looked at us like we were... That probably um, says more about us than them, I imagine. But I think we're quite friendly, friendly gents, you know. But she, they, they honestly, she looked like she was doing us a massive favour just by serving us drinks. I do think I dig a hole for myself in that I dress and look like an American, which doesn't tend to go down too well in a we're lot of countries. speaking Spanish, though. But then... Also, we're speaking in Spanish, and she's replying to us in English. So that's on her. So, we, But then we obviously look American or yeah, well, English, we're talking and English, she's trying to are. make life easier for herself. Yeah. So she's clocked who we are, what nationality we are. And what we're all or, about, consuming yeah, capitalism. And like, oh, geez, another, another couple of this lot. Talking about per diems and podcasts. <laughs> she wasn't very <laughs> impressed. Yeah. Uh, Gremio Palmeiras. Well, this is all on... I mean, this is the joy of this week's podcast, Windsor, is that this week and next week, my, the remainder of the Live to Doris, this is all on you, really, now. I can sit back and fire questions <laughs> at you because... An audience for Windsor. Yeah, this, uh, this is more of an interview. Well, I should have got the spotlight down and shun it in your face. I like the spotlight effect. Um, <laughs> yeah, this was a quarterfinal clash, which obviously it's all Brazilian. It's an all Brazilian uh, half of the draw. Palmeiras... They've spent so much money, they should be good, and they are good. They're not pretty to watch, which is always dangerous, because then if you lose, you've got nothing to fall back on, and that's what Phil Scolari's based this Palmeiras side about. But they are a really, really impressive side. They've got really, really good players. 
And yeah, they beat Gremio by a goal to nil, got the away goal. It's just so hard. To, they're so solid defensively. It's really, really hard to see them not qualifying for the semi-finals of, of the Libertadores. Okay, you've brushed over what is quite possibly one of the best goals of the Libertadores that we've had so far. Yep. I mean, we've seen some wonderful goals, but Gustavo Scarpa's free kick, what, 35 yards out? Savage amount of bend, smashed into the top corner, maybe tickles the underside of the crossbar as well. That is some goal. Actually, I think that's a line from... That is some goal. Bradley Walsh, I think, has said that during an <laughs> FA Cup final. Um, but that is, that is one hell of a strike away from home. You say they're boring. That was an emphatic way to get an away goal and get a result on the road. What yeah. was boring about them? Though? Well, I mean, like, people will say winning can never be boring and, and they won the game. It's a, it's a ridiculous goal, yeah. And I think because Gustavo Scarpa, who's had a, an incredible tournament, actually, he's... Um, yeah, he's been on fire in the Libertadores this year. Because Scolari knows he's got that individual quality in his side, he's happy to kind of bank on the collective defensive unit. And he knows that one of those players is going to produce something. Um, you know, they're really... I know Godot Cruz aren't the best side in the world, but they're really impressive against Godot Cruz in the, in the second leg to win, to win 4-0. And uh, Gustavo Scarpa, yeah, he's a really tidy player. It is a real hit. Keeper can see it from a long way, which I'm always a little bit sceptical about. But listen, it's goal of the round. And, um, and I just, I think a lot of people have a soft spot for Phil Scolari. Not just because he punched someone on the touchline 20 odd years ago. But I think there's something, you know, he's 70 years old now. And I think it's, he'll, most people will forever remember Phil Scolari for what happened with that Brazil side and the, the infamous 7-1 against Germany. But he's had such a varied and successful career. He won the Libertadores with Palmeiras in 1999, which is so long ago. And 20 years later, he could win Palmeiras, his second Libertadores title. Um, and I think it'd be a great story. And yeah, like I say, I like Phil Scolari. But, you know, on the touchline, he's, um, I- I'd, love to, I'd like to see him do it. Well, Phil Scolari does, because A, as you say, he's been around in football, particularly for our generation. He's been around almost forever. Yeah. You know, that Brazil side in the 2002 World Cup was a fantastic Brazil side to watch. And, you know, Scolari was at the helm for that. And we all know what happened with that Brazil-England game as mm-hmm. well. We were allowed out of lessons to be able to watch it yep. when I was a kid. So not that I want to show my age too much, but it almost feels like he's like your granddad now yeah, in football. Yeah, I was going to say there's something of that. Elder statesman, father. He's figure. been around forever. He's been the key figure, I think, in management as a Brazilian. Because, as you rightly said, there's also the, the negative side of what happened in 2014 against Germany. But arguably, two of the more iconic tournaments of that we've lived through in our generation. He's been at the helm of those Brazilian sides that have been the focal point of those two tournaments. And so he's kind of just always been there. Yeah. Milled around in China for a bit, you know, yeah. did his traveling. He's, uh, his career and wants to get another Libertadores as well. Yeah. And I don't think it's fair that, you know, an entire man's, I mean, I guess that's football, isn't it? And that's the real sharp end of football. And that's the brutal element of football. But it's not really fair that a man's entire professional career could hang on one 90 minutes of what is a game. And that, that is. For anyone that doesn't know much about Phil Scolari's career, that is what people will remember him for. So, but if he was, you know, if he were sorry to, to win the Libertadores this year with Palmeiras, then uh, that, that would create certainly within this continent, uh, South America, a completely different narrative. I think um, I think it's perhaps maybe a European angle to look at it as yeah, he'd be remembered for what happened in that World Cup against Germany. Uh, obviously, well, in Brazilian, <laughs> obviously in Brazil they remember. I mean. Won a Libertadores with Gremio, has already won one, as you say, with Palmeiras, won a World Cup as well. Very successful. I mean, they will. It was a huge coup for the Chinese League, for the Chinese Football Federation, to get him to come and manage Gangsao Evergrande. It was seen as, hey, look, it's another huge name when also I think it was Marcello Lippi from Italy went across at that point as well. So the, the world pedigree, I think, would still be there. But I think as well, it's the age factor. Yeah, You know, you see some 70-year-olds losing their marbles sure. and he just looks on point. And not only that, but tactically on point yeah. in dealing with the team. Whereas some old managers, you think they're not able to connect with players. They're not able to really get the players to do what they want them to do. And I guess you'd say, aside from Felipe Melo, Scolari's got his team kind Let, of let's talk about under his minute, watch. Definitely. Yeah, we'll come on to but them in a moment. No, I know exactly what you mean. And, and tactically, he is, 
he is still like he's absolutely there. And when you look you look over his the team's managed, which starts in 1982, and it's easy to gloss over. I mean, you mentioned you know some of the clubs that he's managed at, but you look at Chelsea and you know Portugal, he's managed in Turkey, Kuwait, other places in the Middle East like Brazil. That is as a human, that's a big you know he spent his entire life working at the, the very like peak of a sport in, you know, all around the world, which is incredibly impressive and like, he's been hugely successful. And I mean, Palmeiras has spent so much money that he should be successful. But F- Felipe Melo got the other kind of big story from that, uh, Grêmio O'Neill Palmeiras one game is the red card for Felipe Melo. I mean, I, I don't know what to say about him. To be, and I like Felipe Melo as a footballer. He's, he's really tidy. He was actually fantastic in the game, breaks up play really well. He can read the game better than people think, but he's just an idiot. He just, he's, so, he's just an idiot. He, it was so obvious it was going to happen. The first booking's really, really early on, and he's just nibbling and biting. It's almost like there's a dark side of him that wants to get sent off. And I know there's kind of this thing about him fulfilling a kind of a version of himself that he's created. It was Tim's line with you on commentary. Yeah. He's uh, trapped inside a personality mm. he's created himself, a persona he's created himself, and he almost feels he has to play up to that now. Maybe there is an edge of that. I mean, some players just love a nibble and like to be that guy in the heart of the pitch that breaks things down and does the dirty work. You think about somebody like uh, Gennaro Gattuso, who played that exact same role. But was he just playing the same style, but in an era where you could get away with it more? I mean, it's not that long ago that Gattuso was playing. But you think about the changes in terms of contact and what... Is a free kick what isn't? What's a yellow card what isn't these days? I know what you mean. And I like a defensive midfielder that is clever enough to, to break up play, to slow things down, to pick up the yellow for the team. But I just, Felipe Melo, I agree that obviously the game has adapted and, and you've got to adapt quickly with it because it changes so fast. But, but how Felipe Melo cannot know, he knows he's on a yellow card, and to, to continually make these little challenges and get sent off. And then he gets sent off, he'll miss the second leg. Um, which I actually I don't think will matter. I think Palmeiras will progress. But um, Crocodile he's in, tears? He's in floods of tears. He's in floods of tears, as if he's totally surprised by what's happened. I don't know how many times Felipe Melo's been sent off in his career. It's probably less than Sergio Ramos and more than, you know, someone else. But he, more than definitely, more than, more than 10 or 20. But uh, He's had nine in straight reds in his domestic leagues that he's played in his career. Okay. Seven double yellow card sendings off That's in quick leagues. Admin, Wilson, I like that. This is all on various websites, don't yeah. worry. Uh, one sending off in a domestic cup in his career, which was a double yellow. And then in international tournaments, this was his first double yellow last year, was sent off in the Libertadores as well for Palmeiras. So with over 20 red cards in his yeah. career domestically. And, you know, uh, like and I say, he's, he's, he's a man who's 36 years old. He's, he's in floods of tears. You know, he's, he's hands over his face for about 60 seconds, then he's off. I don't know. I mean, I, thi- I, honestly, I honestly, think, honestly think he could, um, he could be a weak link. In, in the, you know, if, he gets sent, if, it's, it's, if they get to the semifinals or, or final and there's 20 minutes left to play, it's nil-nil and Felipe Melo does something stupid, he could cost Palmeiras this tournament. Well, I tell you... It's probably worthwhile him getting sent off now. A, because they're going to go yeah. to back home with this away goal against the Gremio side. That The next point I want to touch on in this game is Gremio don't have an out-and-out finisher. They don't have somebody in the middle of the park that can find the back of the net and they rely far too much on the flanks. And when they don't produce, they don't have anything. We'll come on to that in a moment. But it means then that actually that middle of the park breaking things up in that second leg isn't going to be as useful. Mm-hmm. Felipe Melo then perhaps going to set this slate clean yep. and come into the semi-finals suddenly and if they progress, of maybe course. Maybe you would have learned by then. <laughs> maybe he'll, he'll think, oh, I've made a mistake here. Probably give it another year before my next sending off in the Libertadores. Yeah. I don't know. I mean... No, no, I know. I mean, it, yeah. I fully expect Palmeiras to go through and you're right, Gremio. I mean, Gremio had all, a lot of the ball, the, the lion's share of possession, but didn't do anything with it. And I mean, I like Everton. He, he, he can be really exciting. We've seen that in the Libertadores this year. But, you know, he's linked to Arsenal. He's not, he, can't, he can't play for Arsenal. He's not good enough for that, from what I've seen. If he was good enough to be playing in Europe, he would have probably gone by now. It's the way I see it. And he'd it. be head and shoulders above everyone else on the pitch in a, in a quarterfinal Libertadores clash. It's probably it's probably very unfair to compare him to someone like Neymar, 
but Neymar was creating headlines mm. on a much grander scale on this continent before going across to I mean, Europe. I think he can play in Europe, but playing for a top six Premier League club can't see it. He's not a Champions League footballer. <laughs> I can't see it. Unless he, there's something I'm missing. Then He's no. a one-trick pony. <laughs> really do think... It's yeah. like Iron Robin, except that Iron Robin had this ability to bamboozle people into thinking that maybe he would use his weaker foot, sure. which has never happened. Whereas Everton doesn't have that ability. And I'm surprised defensive and we sides haven't say, worked no, him out yet. Yeah, we're judging him on a... You know, we're judging him on a European level, even though he's playing in South America. And clearly at this level, he's really important and he's a very, very good footballer. But, you know, you've got to judge players harshly if they're linked to clubs like Arsenal. And, and just, you, you're absolutely right. He's, he's, he's not there. And unfortunately for Gremio is that, as you say, he's not the weak link in this side. And they're not a bad... I mean, I really like Walter Kahneman as the mm. centre-back. I think the Argentinian defender plays very well 90% of the time. And can do a very good job in terms of being that last man playing the slightly more sweeper role in that back four. But there's a problem in the middle of the pitch with Jean-Pierre. Yeah. And there's also a problem with the centre-forward Andre, who you thought, perhaps after Libertad and getting a couple of goals, that would springboard him into this round of the competition. I didn't really see Gremio create any decent chances that really threatened the Palmeiras goal over the 90 minutes, despite having more of the possession, just not really doing enough with it. And it's, I think it's because they lack at that threat in the middle of the park. And until they can change that, until they can find a solution. I mean, they, they bring on Diego Tardelli, who scored that big goal in, uh, mm. in the first leg against Libertad in the first knockout stage. But he's obviously somebody that isn't ready to take on that mantle because he's had so many off-the-field problems as well, particularly with his, uh, I guess, mental side of his sure. life away from football and you hope he gets that sorted but he's not ready to lead a Libertadores side on the front line I don't think it, it's hard I mean it's hard to see Gremio coming back from it Palmeiras have the away goal but listen there's one goal in it and, and, and anything could happen really and you mentioned Jean-Pierre and I, he's yeah, he's an interesting player he's, his gait's really interesting he's kind of he's quite languid in his style um, he's very watchable but um, I think it's a big task for Gremio Palmeiras has spent an awful lot of money so they really should go through they've got the one goal lead expect them to go through nice little Tuesday night then having that on the uh, Libertadores and then moving very quickly into what was meant to be the the tie of the round the spanner in the works the one that was going to fool everybody and it was going to be Liga de Quito at altitude mm. doing the business over Boca Juniors <laughs> and to be honest guilty you're guilty <laughs> because you back them as the hipster's choice and I think you've saved yourself by continually saying the hipster's choice so <laughs> not it's not been choice. a true backing yeah but we all bought into it massively and I I am going to mention this that we were sat in the office and it said that Bocker had turned up on the Monday and you turned to me and said I don't rate them turning up here on the Monday <laughs> they're not going to get acclimatized and it's not the last second entry into Quito to just try and play mm -hmm. the game and get out of mm -hmm. there I think Monday might be the trick if you're playing on a Wednesday because Boca looked fantastic against a Quito side, Liga de Quito side that didn't really turn up at all and Boca getting a 3-0 victory on the road. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> everything uh, everything went wrong for, for Liga de Quito. Um, as, they, as everyone knows, they play in Quito, which is nearly 3,000 metres above sea level. And statistically and historically, that's been a huge advantage for them. Uh, but Boca <laughs> went there and won 3-0. That was the best I've seen... Boca play um, it, it, it was kind of we spoke about it before about how it might suit Alfaro like because he's a defensive manager and this kind of gave him not an excuse to be defensive but also yeah an excuse to be defensive and he did just that actually they were helped because Zarate got injured early on and was substituted and uh, when Reynoso came on they, they really did pack out the midfield and they, Salvio played wide right Reynoso wide left and crucially, you've been saying it, Oli, for, for weeks now, you've got to play Alexis McAllister more central, right? They did that. He pulled the strings, dictated everything, created the first goal, and, uh, and Boca really never looked back. What do I ask you about Abila, who seems to have an excellent game, and we've certainly seen him really cold in this tournament. And I think we've kind of seen bits of him over the last few months in league competitions, in uh, cup competitions as well in Argentina, where Abila hasn't looked like he's firing on all cylinders in any way, shape or form. But this game seemed to really suit him for some reason as well, with 
we all know Alfaro likes to play things in the middle of the park and having Abila running into a channel and just getting a through ball into him. But as a lone centre forward, mm. rather than with somebody partnering alongside him, rather had seemed to have a lot of space on his own, but used it to great effect. Yeah. I'm struggling to work out how this works so well for him, though. You know, I've seen him. He's kind of watching kind of Argentine TV here and talking to people. And he's kind of the butt of a few jokes because he's not... He's quite a clumsy footballer in many ways. But there's a lot to like about him. There really is. And, and I think if you tell him you're the only player, you know, you're playing up front by yourself. And he really was. It was a five-man midfield and then about 20 yards and then Abila up front by himself or Juan Chope, as he's referred to. In, uh, in Buenos Aires and Argentina. But, but Abila, if you tell him you've got to do all the work, you've, you, you're completely by yourself, and people are just going to try to hit you and bounce off you, then he kind of comes into his own. And listen, he scored the first goal he scores, he takes really, really well to give Boca the lead. Um, the, the third goal of the game is an own goal from Casado, but it was very much Abila's persistence that, that made it possible. And I think if you accept what he is and, and he feels valued in that system, then it works really well. And, you know, Abela's going to start up front now for Boca the rest of, for as long as they're in the Libertadores because that's a system that works for them. I, I like Zarate. I think he's a really kind of interesting player, just drops off the, the front man and plays between the lines. But the way that Boca played with Zarate not, Zarate not on the pitch, um, I think that he'll, I think Alfaro will, will keep with that kind of five-man midfield and Abela as the front man. Seemed to be a game that played perfectly into Alfaro's playing style as mm. well. As you mentioned, the, the altitude meant that playing such a clustered heart of the pitch and not stretching it like Boca tend to not do as well. I mean, they try and get people down the flanks every so often, but it more seems to be building up down the centre and then pushing it out wide at the mm. last minute a lot of the time if they do go that way. It just seemed like they're the only team that have a style of football that's already equipped to play at altitude. Yeah. And nullifies then Liga de Quito's advantage. I mean, it has to be said, that the home side as well, playing without Johan Julio, who has been a pretty key figure yeah, in quality. joining attacks forward and pushing Liga de Quito on and creates goals, scores goals in the Copa Libertadores. And he was really missed as a, as a creative spark in this game. But Big loss. Big loss. I still don't. Yeah, I'm still baffled as to how Liga de Quito, who've been a great team to play on the, to watch on the flanks, playing against a really narrow Boca side. Boca's style of football plays into playing at altitude and not stretching a game. But you'd have also thought that played into Liga de Quito's hands of we get players wide and we try and stretch a game and we try and make teams run around a lot and they just never seem to nah. get. Boca it moving just didn't it. work and Shikaiza came in for Johan Julio who was suspended and Shikaiza just couldn't make it work and then Orojuela gets sent off and it just it all kind of fell apart for Liga de Quito and, and I wonder if when Boca were 1-0 up and um, Orojuela got sent off if Liga would have been better off kind of accepting the 1-0 defeat and they, they, they push forward trying to find an equalising goal, which is commendable. And they obviously still felt altitude, they could pinch one. But, you know, you go back to La Bombonera 1-0 down and the tie's still on. You go to La, La Bombonera 3-0 down and the tie's not on. And, and they're, bar a miracle, they're out. So, yeah, really disappointing from Liga de Quito. As well, you know, from, from a completely neutral perspective, the Argentine and Brazilian dominance, I'm not going to say it's boring, but you want to see, you know, it's a South American competition. You want to see other nations represented and... Uh, Especially when, like you've got, going to be the case. especially when you've got a whole side of a draw that is all yeah. Brazilian as well. I mean, it's Brazil against the rest of the continent. Yep. Just lastly, great to have, for Boca fans anyway, to have uh, Lopez and Izquierdos back as the two central defenders as well. That obviously stabilises the heart of the pitch too, which means that the fullbacks don't have to worry about coming inside and supporting that back line in the heart of the pitch mm -hmm. and can instead block things off on the wide yeah, positions definitely. as well. Those, those two at centre-back and Marconi just sitting in front of them they're not going to concede many goals the rest of this tournament. I'm not saying they're going to win it because I don't think they will, but they're not going to concede many goals. And it was interesting as well, you know, if you kind of look from outside the club, so much talk about De Rossi and, you know, he didn't get on the pitch and, and, and Tevez um, didn't get on the pitch either. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think that that's the side that, the side that played will be the side that Alfaro uses um, for the rest of the Libertadores. And, um, yep. We chucking Quito out. They're done. I mean, you know, there goes La Bombonera needing 
a minimum of three goals. Yeah, they're out. I'm not going to say I've done the research because I definitely haven't, but I definitely can't imagine that it's ever happened before. Mm-hmm. Boca have such a great record on home soil as well in the Libertadores. Hipsters are going to be frustrated. Yeah, this it's not. If Boca were a super expansive side, then maybe, but they're they're not, and they're, they're you know they'll be defensive enough, even at home. Even at home, how far it might we wait to see. But he'll keep the same side. You know, he's not going to. You know, I don't think he'll go more attacking. And um, he's not changed it much throughout the competition, except for no. the quality that he's brought into the side, yeah. and obviously having to move things around because the likes of Nandez and others leaving mm-hmm. in the winter break. But, we spoke a lot about Nandes leaving and he is, you know, he's going to be a big loss. But I don't know, Alexis McAllister's 20 years old and yeah, he might go back to Brighton. But in terms of quality, I think Nandes is a better player at this point in his career. But Alexis McAllister's very tidy and, and Salvio as well is obviously proven pedigree. So, yeah, they kind of filled that hole well. Brighton fans would do well to try and have a look at yeah. the game at home against Liga de Quito coming up. and Have a look at the first goal. It, Alexis McAllister just knows exactly what's in front of him. Lovely weighted pass and... Yeah, Boca as good as through. Which takes us into the evening game of Wednesday night in the Libertadores. Another all-Brazilian clash on the other side of the draw. The powerhouse of Brazilian football, the money spenders Flamengo, taking on Internacional. Flamengo have one foot in the semi-finals of the Copa Libertadores. Two goals in three minutes from Bruno Henrique doing the damage on a night where the home side dominated in the Maracanã. The Brazilian hipster's choice, I think I'd say, mm-hmm. just because I don't think they have as much pedigree, perhaps, as Palmeiras and Flamengo. And it's basically the two Porto Alegre sides that were the underdogs going into the quarterfinals on this side of the draw. Jeez, I've never been so disappointed by a setup. Looking at when the team news came out, looking at that international side. It was so negative. And Which is a huge shame, right? Because I know you've enjoyed watching them throughout the tournament. And oh, it's just frustrating because Rodrigo Lindoso and uh, Edge Nielsen, two players who sit alongside Patrick in that three-man midfield, they've both shaken off injuries to play in this game. And you thought, great, those two are definitely in the side. So it's that usual midfield three. This is going to be a... a exciting team to watch because they seem to be the driving force in the middle of the park. D'Alessandro, the Argentinian, the captain on the right flank, he's old, but, you know, he still does the job. He started most games. Guerrero is in fine form, four and four. No Nicolas Lopez on the left side of the attack. Mm -hmm. And he is the pace to try and stretch a game for Internacional in this Libertadores. He scored three goals already in the competition albeit in the group stages, hasn't scored since the away trip against Alianza Lima. But he's played really well. He should have had at least a goal in the second leg against Nacional in the last round of the competition. And when he came on late on in this game, he created the best chances for Internacional. Instead, they played Rafael Sobis to start the game in a front three with an average age, uh, with a combined age of 107. An average age in the starting 11 of 31.6 years old, which is old yeah that is old yeah really old it's and you just knew from that point they weren't going to rio to attack and try and take on flamengo they were trying to sit in for a nil nil it's a huge shame isn't it when you see a side that has been successful with one way of playing and then kind of switch and panic at um the quarterfinal stage um yeah i mean flamengo what about flamengo though i mean they spent a lot of money they're a really good side uh there was a lot of talk about uh, Gabriel Barbosa not being fit and then he miraculously was fit intensive therapy which mm. I also think may mean numerous injections we into the thigh injury yeah. well maybe maybe a little bit of uh, shadow games as well yeah. but definitely something's been added to his water um, it's all above board I'm sure but something to get him to play that game which actually makes me think that they were so desperate to get Gabby Gol as he's called by the fans and pretty much by everybody who supports Flamengo, is around Flamengo and around Brazilian football. They were so desperate to get him in because they were nervous of Internacional and what they might bring, and they wanted to ensure that their star centre-forward was playing. And actually, it was a game that they didn't really need him Mm. because Inter sat back so much. And just going back quickly to why they did that, I think there's an element of naivety from Odair Hellman, the manager who's managing 
in his first ever Libertadores campaign. It's his first real job. Whereas Jorge Jesus, the Portuguese manager who's come in this June, he's just brought a European attacking mindset. Because we've they're been fun to watch, aren't they, Flamengo? We've been told throughout this competition that Brazilian sides tend to, in a nervy big game, they'll perhaps just tend to sit back in Libertadores, particularly away from home on, mm. on the road in first legs and such. And we've seen that from some teams in this competition, but not Jorge Jesus' no. side. He's gone out, he's brought in Felipe Luis, he's brought in Rafinha, he's got Gabriel Barbosa in on loan, or he had Gabriel Barbosa in on loan from Inter. Arascaeta's pulling the strings. Bruno Enrique's getting assist after assist after assist. And he said, right, we've got a great attacking team. Yeah. Go out and get in the faces of them. And Inter just sat back and tried to soak it up for as long as they could. And they did a really good job initially with Rodrigo Maledo and Victor Cuesta, who play nicely as a back two together. But as soon as they brought on Nico Lopez in about 15 minutes to go and tried to stretch it, it was the first time we'd really seen Rodrigo Maledo go out a little away from Victor Cuesta and try and commit to closing high up the pitch. And that's what left Cuesta one-on-one -on -one with Bruno Enrique that gave Enrique the chance to get the opening goal. And they got two in three minutes and mm. it was suddenly a fireball away from home for Internacional. They couldn't do anything about it until Nico Lopez wasted about three good chances at the end of the game. And he puts one of those in. I mean, I saw the one that he's dragged wide of the upright when he cuts in on his left foot and he puts that in. It's a totally different second leg, isn't it? Completely different. I mean, the American I was ecstatic. You know, Gabby Goal impersonators were in the crowd. They were doing all the shots Flamengo of all the, some fun fans. all the kooky fans they could find. Yeah. I, I very much enjoyed the guy dressed up as a referee in the crowd who did a little look at VAR nice. and was checking and all that kind of stuff. But um, but yeah, they that away goal would have completely changed the complexion of the tie suddenly. But also, on that moment you're talking about Nico Lopez comes inside it's perfectly on his left foot and I think he's got a right to have a go but he's also got Wellington Silva yeah. and Guerrero wide open and on the other side of the 18 yard box yeah. oh they were yeah. Guerrero especially was a frust I thought he was going to get sent off because he got yeah. booked uh, midway through the game and you really thought he was going to get another yellow card because he was playing on raw emotion against his former club the Peruvian centre forward who's had such a good uh, summer stroke winter in the Copa America and it's been quality since then coming back into the Libertadores as well he was a man playing right on the edge and could have easily walked for some of the outbursts he had at the referee but in the end they wasted opportunities late on Inter and didn't get the away goal it's a really tough task suddenly they've got the quality to be expansive and aggressive on home soil and get a 2-0 victory but you don't see them perhaps stopping Flamengo you back Flamengo to get a goal away from home sure it's interesting what you're saying about um, George Jesus and the fact that you know he's come and he's played like attacking football and I wonder if he's he's just not bogged down in Libertadores history he obviously understands the competition but from coming from Europe and it helped if you got the players to do it but to play in this kind of open expansive way just some of the players you're reeling off there like they're really interesting players Gabriel Barbosa and Bruno Henrique and Arascaeta like they're, they're super creative players and yeah, I wonder if there's just no burden. There's, you know, he feels free. He did it? say in an interview... And I know there's a lot of pressure on him because it's Flamengo. It's a huge football club. In the week before the game, he said in an interview that in Europe, nobody ever speaks of the Brazilian Serie A mm -hmm. and nobody ever really speaks of the Libertadores. Which, which is, is Yeah, which is kind of true. And he said, since arriving here, I now understand the weight of the Libertadores, which I think you can understand it. But until you've really lived it... Mm. I'm not sure as a manager that you could feel that same pressure. Now, if he got to the final, doesn't win it, and then sees the reaction perhaps that he gets in Rio for getting so near, but still not getting the only thing that they dream of this mm. year, really, Flamengo fans, then he might really understand the weight on his shoulders. But right now, so early on in his tenure, as I say, only been here since June in uh, Flamengo, he hasn't really felt that burden, especially as he's got a great side who got through the last round with flying colours eventually against Emelec, maybe felt a bit the weight of it after the 2-0 loss away from home in the first leg of the round at 16, but it's not that complete pressure yet. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I know some Flamengo fans haven't been, been happy and stuff, but yeah, he, 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 he might be able to play, um, you know, without that kind of weight on the shoulders that a lot of managers have uh, on this continent. And my goodness, he's got the players to do it as well. And you've got winners of major competitions with... Rafinha and Felipe Luis just coming into a side yeah, experience. which and that attitude around a camp as well you always hear about people talking about that sort of thing and how important it is 
Yeah. You'd be hard to see Flamengo not going through after this result. They've won it once in 1981. I think that's that right. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that is, you know, if he can win it in 2019, 81 is a long time ago. You know, he's a hero. Yeah. And you'd say there's probably more pressure now than there has been in previous years on Flamengo managers in general because of the financial burden that the club yeah, has money. been put under to, to create this success. But, you know, they're fighting on all, on all fronts at the moment in terms of the league title. Still two points off top against uh, Santos, who are first in the Brazilian Serie A, and they've almost booked a place in the semi-final. It's not over till it's over. Got no, to stress that, obviously. But yeah, it's two 0 second leg to come, but you know, they should go there and they should, in theory, get a job done, unless Inter go for broke. Wellington Silva and Nico Lopez to start well, Guerrero to. down the middle. That should be the way that it goes. Try and stretch the play, get Patrick making the runs into the channels. We all know. Sounds after, like you should be the boss. <laughs> we all know after me waxing lyrical about international throughout yeah. this podcast, what needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, we kind of dismissed a few sides already as being out of the competition. I guess Liga de Quito could Liga de Quito could go to La Bombonera and win four 0 I guess Gremio could overturn a one 0 deficit against Palmeiras. And Internacional, at their very best, can score two goals against Flamengo, but none of those three things look likely. To be honest, we were uber critical of Gremio at the very beginning. And it is only a 1-0 victory sure. that Palmeiras have. It's just a very strong side. But yeah, mm. yeah, I think I think how these first three games have gone, we're set up for that result continuing in the second legs. Which, going into the fourth game of the week, mm-hmm. you're kind of hard pushed to say that Cerro Porteño were going to turn around the deficit after, again... Windsor, I'll hand it over to you, really. River Plate seemed to completely boss them, but still haven't got out of second and a half gear in this competition. Yeah, it's really funny, River, because River Plate are the defending champions and they're playing Serra Portenio in this quarterfinal clash. And we saw, we, we were at, uh, at Racing to see River beat Racing 6-1 in the Argentine Superliga at the weekend. And and that was, that was, I mean, I know Racing played a high line, but Racing are the Argentine champions and River dismantled them. Like they were clinical, took their chances, but dismantled them. And that was River at their best. And it was an absolute, it was a statement performance. And people, you know, were saying one of the best performances of Gachado's reign. And then against Sarah Porteño, they were good. And it's kind of nearly there. There's moments where you think it's really, really nearly there for River, but they don't quite explode. And they're quite wasteful in front of goal. They certainly were against Sarah Porteño, quite wasteful in front of goal. They won 2 0. The first one's a penalty from Nacho Fernandez, and then Santos Borre also scores from the penalty spot after 65 minutes to make it 2 0. But I just think that the midfield four for me for River, Nacho Fernandez, Perez, and Palacios, who are rock solid in the centre of the park, I really like Perez, and Nico de la Cruz, the younger Uruguayan. That's the best midfield for me in the tournament uh, in terms of balance. I think it's got a bit of everything. Um, Matias Suarez. And he's um, missing something. Still as well, well of course, Kitera, yeah. right? missing the best player, you know, in the, <laughs> and apparently he's back in in October, maybe. So should River get through to the semi-finals, then um, you know, then maybe he'll be back for that. But um, you know, they, they, they've they've won two 0 and River look. They, they they I think they've won two games in the Libertadores coming into that game uh, in midweek. So they, it's, it's odd, really. They, they qualify from their group, which was quite matter of fact. They squeeze past Cruzeiro on penalties. Um, and Sarah Portenio are not a great side. And they did have one great chance, actually. Haider Valdez, the, the veteran, had a great header, which he had a, a, a great opportunity from a header, which he couldn't convert. River win 2 0 at the Monumental and nearly in the semi finals to play. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, they're already uh, trying to get people off the streets in military garb and preparing the city for the potential Super Classico in the semi finals. Come on to that. I just want to ask you about, because everybody's been raving in what I've read in the Paraguayan press, which is probably the most pretentious footballing sentence that I'll ever say in my life. What I've read in the Paraguayan press. <laughs> and, uh, but any, every single article that's discussed Cerro Porteño that I've read has been saying how Aza Mendia, the left back, is the next best thing to come out of Paraguayan football and mm. he's going to be a quality player and he can get forward and create, but he's also very good defensively. I was just wondering, you've, you've had a chance to see him kind of in the flesh. If there was anything at all that shows that he can play at that level, does he just lack a supporting cast around him? You or? know what? It was really hard to judge, Ollie, because 
It was against the Riverside playing at home at the Monument Tower. They had all the ball. Montiel doesn't want to play it right back. He wants to play at the corner flag at the other end. You know, he's, so he's really pushing Azabendia um, back as far as he could. And, and De La Cruz and Nacho Fernandez switching flanks at times. So it was really difficult to judge. But um, I haven't read the Paraguayan press as extensively as you perhaps. Uh, but Don't which, make me sound way, like that guy. He's a fantastic phrase. Uh, but... Yeah, he's high. He's highly rated, but to be honest, you couldn't see it in this game. Um, you couldn't see it, and yeah, I mean, v- I should say the VAR was in operation, of course, and correctly uh, called everything correct in terms of the penalties. I actually, yeah. you're not sure about the first one, but the, the first one, for I me, was... is a penalty. Nico De La Cruz gets gets fouled. Laravet, it's a clear foul for me. There's a few that I've seen that have gone to VAR that I understand why after a video review they get given, but at the same time, particularly this one on Nico De La Cruz, the the leg's coming down as he's stretching out for the ball. Mm. And Dela Cruz has been able to kind of hop away, but there is contact. It's not like the guy's gone through him and is crunching down on him or anything yeah. like that. And I think when you see it in slow motion, you see that there's a touch. And so therefore, the referee feels like there is contact, so he has to give it. And I think that's just a way that we're going down now in football. Not a pun that was meant to be made there, yeah. but it seems to be... What's happening? There's just a one couple. One thing I would say is no one really appeals, which doesn't mean that it's not a foul or is a foul, but it just means that the footballing brain of the players, which you see now, and it's really odd when VAR gives the decision that um, that players don't react to. You know, it's, it doesn't mean it's incorrect because it's often not. It's often absolutely correct, and that's exactly why VAR is there to spot stuff that um, that humans can't, if you like. But uh, yeah, it, it was. I mean, for me, it's a pen. Well, it's been given as a pen. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be taken back as much as Sarah Potenia would like that and uh, Fernandez tucking that away after eight minutes as well, which really just kind of cripples mm. you as an away side going somewhere like that against the reigning champions and one of the best sides because they are still one of the best sides to watch in the Copa Libertadores this year. Charlotte wants to do things the right way, yeah. They are good. They're, 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 they're good to watch. They're just a pass away from it and then Borre with the, with the second penalty as well and could have had a... Well, you thought they'd got their second before that second penalty as well were it not for a, a yeah it's another handball. weird one really because <laughs> Matias Suarez lays it across to Nacho Fernandez who tucks it away and it's kind of one of those weird post VAR world moments when you experience all that raw energy and beauty of a goal and then it gets taken away from you which is I, I don't know really I find it very bizarre you commit you commit an emotional response to something that turns out not to be real, I don't know. It's, it's, I know. I don't want to get too esoteric about it, but it is. It's just not how I or anyone of my generation has experienced the game. We've never watched football like this until no. now. And I didn't play football like that in the park. You know, I didn't. That's not why I fell in love with football. They don't have VAR at the Hackney Marshes <laughs> where you grew up. I oh, know down in Brighton. Excuse me, the AstroTurf down mate. near Brighton. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, checking the security cameras around the sports centre to see Adapt if it was or die, as Darwin said, Holly Wilson so. Is it, is it weird as a commentator to come back from that? Because when you have a goal like that, it's a wonderfully worked goal that's finished off with a wonderful first-time finish at the back post as well. Mm. And you kind of, you, when you do go big, you know, you do get an adrenaline rush because sure. you're kind of sucked into that moment. I think it's what unites everyone. But Whether you're a player or a fan or a journalist or, or anything, it, it, what... Why most people fell in love with football was for those five to ten seconds after a goal is scored, which is just such unfiltered emotion. And that emotion is now filtered. But is it difficult to then come back into the game after that? Because you suddenly have to pull yourself away and kind of reset quite quickly. I suppose there's time while they're looking to pull down. But I think what will inevitably happen in football commentary is commentators won't ever commit so like players won't ever commit to a celebration and like supporters in the ground or watching on television won't commit to a celebration journalists and commentators will not commit like it might not happen immediately because it's so deep rooted inside us to the ball crosses the line it's a goal that's how we know football so everyone's emotion is so instantaneous to react to that but i think in five or less than five years probably you'll have commentators saying oh you know it's I don't know, it's so weird. I need to find some footage, and I will probably end up scouring the internet for it this weekend, of a, Busy man, then. Of a, Sp- <laughs> of a Spanish commentator doing a goal shout, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, then yeah. having to 
pull it short. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody be like, oh, go, oh. Yeah, go. yeah, I don't <laughs> know how they'll deal with it. It's, 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 it's something. We lo- you lose, you lose, you lose that moment, and and what you gain is accuracy and uh, things being correct and uh, yeah, <laughs> all that fantastic stuff. But it has been a fantastic week of Libertadores football. Really enjoyed it. it. Actually, really enjoyed it. Hasn't thrown in many surprises, which is almost surprising considering we were at least expecting one. Um, anything going to change from how these first legs have gone? Should we all just? You know what? In a weird way, just because we're talking about River Serra Porteño. In a very odd way, if there's one of the four ties, and I know I've tipped Liga de Quito to, to win it, so feel free to just stop listening right now. But the, in, a, in a very strange way, Cerro Porteño are the only side that I could see overturning that first leg deficit. It's an old Cerro Porteño side. And even though River dominated the game, scored two goals, could have scored more, there's something... Cerro Porteño were essentially just trying to hit the front two that had a combined... I know we're into our combined ages. The front two had a combined age of 70. And they were trying to feed off the scraps. And there was one or two moments where you thought, this could work. And I don't know, you go back to Asuncion, Cerro Patenio's ground is, is rocking, nothing to lose, River with everything to lose. I'm not saying it will happen, but out of the four ties, I cannot see Palmeiras. They're too strong. Flamengo are too good, I think. Boca are leading 3-0. Of the four ties, if it's going to happen, if there's going to be a turnaround, I think it will happen in Asuncion, Paraguay. I'm still going with Inter to be the ones to pull it. Oh, it needs to be really special. It would. Because they'll have to play so open. And I just think, like, Gabriel's in such great form. I know Bruder Henrique was the one that scored the goals, but Gabriel's in such great form. Oof, I can't see it. It's, it's going to require Rodrigo Maledo to babysit Victor Cuesta as a back two. Those two can't be separated like they were for just one or two moments. And that's the only time when Flamengo looked like they'd score. Aside from that, it was a really solid defensive performance that was just too negative going the other way. Mm-hmm. And I think if they can tweak that balance, there's a game to be had in Porto Alegre next week. And I'm not just saying that because I've backed into and because I've enjoyed watching them or anything. I, I do think, I think Palmeiras are too strong for a Gremio side that struggled to score goals against a decent opposition. Liga de Quito have dug themselves a hole and the Bombonera doesn't get overthrown with a 4-0 defeat for Boca in the Copa Libertadores quarterfinals. but I think you're yeah. right, yeah. And River Plate, the reigning champions, and there's, there's still, there should still be more to come from. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Which then just quickly takes us on to the, the favourite topic of the tournament, which is Boca potentially meeting River. And it's suddenly looking like a real problem. <laughs> it's you want to call really it a problem. fantastic as well, isn't it? I think if you don't know anything about the Libertadores or if you're a football fan that just follows European football and someone says oh River are playing Boca and it, 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 just, it just transcends the continent in a massive way and that's not even including what happened last year and all the, all the kind of the, you know every, hoopla around yeah like all the, all the, all the um, additional stuff around that even if you don't include last year you just say River Boca and it's um yeah, I was actually reading Joel Richards' book on the Super Classico. There's a plug for you, Joel. And, uh, available on Amazon. It is available on Amazon. And it's a great read and telling me stuff about the history that I didn't even know. And I think a, obviously there's a lot of hatred there. But as a pure footballing rivalry, I, I really do... You know, people will talk about Rangers-Celtic, right? It's so laced in religion or Madrid-Barcelona. I know it's not a local derby, but Madrid-Barcelona is so laced in politics. River Boca is so... It's so purely football... And I know there is, of course, what happened last year and everything, um, everything outside of that. But it's so hard not to get excited about it. I mean, River Plate against Boca Juniors, and it took so many years for them to meet in the final. Now they might actually meet the next year in the semi-finals. Chance for Boca to get revenge, which everyone will talk about the chance for Boca Juniors to get revenge. Of course, River winning the final, but not many people will talk about the fact that if River win that, you know, they that's they can double down on the idea that. River Plate and Marcelo Gachada are the best side in Buenos Aires by a mile. And Boca are, I'm not going to say irrelevant in that rivalry, but... Second fiddle. I, I mean, absolutely. And, and River, will be, they've got the better manager and they've got the better players. Bragging rights in... Secured. The best footballing city on the planet. Indefinitely. And this is the best footballing city on the planet, by the way. This should be something we should throw out to people, actually. This could be a different pod, but it's... it's People say, oh, we talked about this kind of on and off over the last few weeks. But, and it is a mad tangent, but 
I think Milan, Liverpool, Madrid, Istanbul and Buenos Aires. And for me, it's Buenos Aires. Yeah, the cluster of teams in Buenos Aires makes it difficult to argue against that because most of those cities are based around rivalries of just two sides. Mm -hmm. And Liverpool-Everton, not a grand rivalry in terms of there's a club that isn't performing as their performance against Aston Villa this evening has certainly shown. Sure, and topical. A, and a, very much so. <laughs> Not that I want to date this thing in any way, shape or form. And the, Talk the, about the Paraguay and Press some more. <laughs> <laughs> I never want to say that on this show ever again. Um, and Liverpool, obviously, Champions League winners. Yeah. The two Milan clubs are that's very a, that's a I mean, well, that's a, but you, could, you could make a really strong case that Milan is the best footballing city in the world. You could. A really strong case. Except for the fact that at this point, neither team is selling out their grounds like Sides in Buenos Aires sure, are like both, Boca and River both, are, but both uh, AC Milan and Inter in very two, recent memory have yeah. won big trophies. Two of the biggest sides in their country sharing a stadium mm -hmm. located in the same city. It's a raw, heated rivalry. Milan fans might try, well, both sides actually try to claim that their biggest rival is Juventus because you have the Davide Italia mm -hmm. between Inter and Juve and obviously Milan and Juve vying for titles throughout the 90s and stuff. But yeah, definitely... And then Istanbul's the kind of other uh, rogue one that you throw in with. If you want to, it depends what barometer you want to go by. But if you want to go by pure kind of passion, then the, you've got to put them into the, the equation. Yeah. We'll put that on Twitter. And Madrid, I mean, it's, you know. We'll but it's little, Buenos Aires for me. Little poll out, see I'm what sold. people say. Yeah. So yeah. it could be a River Boca semi final and the other side of the draw, which is all Brazilian. Big giants. It's the money spenders. Palmeiras Flamengo would be cracking. Battle of the bank. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, those would be two unbelievable semi-finals. You'd probably have the best four footballing sides. Yeah, we talked about how there haven't been that many upsets in the tournament so far. And that comes with a negative, but it also comes with a positive that you could get to the semi-final stage and you've got, like you said, the four best sides left in it, which is probably accurate, really. That's how you want it to be. Yep. Big thanks to, uh, I guess, no one for joining Dave and I on the Wilson and Windsor podcast this week. Remember, you can download the podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Anchor.fm, our host, Spotify, and various other podcast outlets as well. You can also email us at willwinpodcast at gmail.com. That's willwinpodcast at gmail.com. That's just a single L on the will. Should have thought that through before I set up the email account. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter as well. David Windsor is at David T. Windsor. That's at David T. Windsor on Twitter. I myself is O underscore J underscore Wilson. That's O underscore J underscore Wilson. Joel Richards is at Joel underscore Richards. That's at Joel underscore Richards. And Peter Coates is Golazo Argentino. That's Golazo Argentino on Twitter. Use the hashtag Libertadores pod to send us your questions via Twitter. And until next week, Enjoy the football. We've got some fine second legs coming up for you in just a few days' time. Oh, 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 oh,